great to be here with you this morning, and just what powerful singing, amen? amen? I was telling Jason last night that I've always felt like the song service really sets the tempo for the speaker, and he said a great tempo, they said a great tempo today, so thank you for that. Um, it's a joy to get to be here with you, I think this is, we were counting probably my fourth or fifth time to get to be with you, it's always a treat, and it's great to have a new member with us today in Easton, and so we hope you all get a chance um, to, to meet him. And it is his first time to hear me preach a sermon. He got to hear me do a wedding last night, um, but he fell asleep, so I don't know if that was good or bad. But uh, excited to be here today, excited to, to talk to you about a topic I am very, very passionate about. I want us to think about the word unexpected, and, and what we think about when we hear that word. Unexpected means surprising, unforeseen, causing amazement, something that we were not expecting to happen. There's been several unexpected events over decades and centuries and things that just nobody could see coming. As a big sports fan, we've had a lot of unexpected events in sports. My dad loved to read me the book as a kid, The, the Amazing Mets, the, the story of the 1969 New York Mets in a time where they didn't fire sell players. You know, you can be the worst team in today's um, sports and business model and go out and buy the best players and be great next year. This was still in the day and age where you had the same players year to year. And in 1968, the Mets were the worst team in baseball. But with the same players and the same coaches, they won the World Series the next year. Unheard of. Unbelievable. But sometimes we have bad, unexpected events. The unexpected news that a loved one has cancer. The unexpected event of 9-11, leaving a country in fear and possible ruin. But today I want to talk about the most unexpected event in history. God dying on a cross. God's last final play for our love. See, the reason we don't necessarily think about crosses or the cross being unexpected is because you and I have become very familiar with crosses. Everywhere we look, there are crosses. We see them on buildings. We see them on necklaces, on T-shirts, on earrings. At Easter, I saw in Walmart, you can buy chocolate crosses for your kids and grandkids to eat. Crosses are everywhere, and as we see them and we are familiar with them, they lose their unexpected nature. But see, it's important to note that no one in Jesus' time would have ever dreamed of placing a cross on a building or on a necklace. So why was the cross so unexpected? Well, number one, it was so unexpected because it was scandalous. It was a huge scandal. 1 Corinthians 1.23 tells us this, but we preach Christ crucified, 
a stumbling block to the Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. In New Testament culture, the cross had a meaning, but it wasn't a good meaning. It was an instrument of torture and pain. It was the worst type of capital punishment of its day. Today in America, we talk about what is cruel and unusual punishment. Should we have capital penalties? And if we do have capital penalties and we have the death penalty, should it be by electric chair? Should it be by um, lethal injection? But both of those together do not equal how scandalous and how cruel the death of the cross was. It was to be agonizing over hours, over days, possibly over weeks. It was only for the lowliest of the criminals. It was so bad, it was so awful, that they made a rule that no Roman could be crucified on a cross. It's why Paul was beheaded and Peter was hung on a cross because Paul was a Roman citizen. See, it was unimaginable for the people of this time that they would be called to follow and lay down their lives for someone that would die this type of death. And that's because they knew this, that the cross was embarrassing. To the Greeks, it was foolish, and to the Jews, even worse, because they understood Deuteronomy 21, 23, that says, anyone who is hung on a tree is under God's curse. Every man who hung on a cross was cursed. It was a sign of failure. The cross did not catch on as a sign of Christianity for a very long time. See, the church fathers forbid that any type of Christian art include the cross. It was not until the 4th century, in the time of Constantine, that the cross became the sign of faith. It was that offensive. It was that scandalous. It was that embarrassing. C.S. Lewis says, crucifixion did not become common in art until all who had seen a real one had died off. It was that embarrassing. If you had seen a real crucifixion, you wouldn't have a cross around your neck. It would be like you wearing a necklace with a gas chamber or an electric chair on it today. The third unexpected nature of the cross was that the cross was unfathomable. Sometimes we struggle reading through the Gospels to figure out these disciples. They had the opportunity to sit at the feet of Jesus for three and a half to four years. Walk with Jesus where Jesus went. See Him perform miracles. See Him raise people from the dead. See Him cure illnesses. But they just still seem pretty dense, right? Why on earth can't they get it? 
Jesus tells them over and over again, I'm going to die on a cross. Mark 9, 31 through 32 says, He was teaching his disciples. He said to them, The Son of Man is going to be betrayed in the hands of men. They will kill him, and after three days, he will rise. And there was times that Peter debates him about this. But the problem we see here is they didn't understand it because to some extent they did understand it. They couldn't fully understand what Jesus was saying because they did understand the cross. The problem with us sometimes is we don't understand the cross so we can't fully understand Jesus. They couldn't get it. It was unimaginable to them to think that God, the awaited Messiah, the one that would come to save the world, would get on a cross. It was unthinkable. And they were so dense about it that when Jesus said, are you willing to drink this cup I'm about to drink? They said yes, because they could not imagine that that cup represented the wrath of God displayed on the cross. They could never understand that thousands of years later, we would sit in a church building and we would sing a song like the old rugged cross. It was unfathomable to them. But as we read the scripture, and as we learn about the story of God and His plan, we understand that the cross was necessary. It was necessary because we must understand two characteristics of God. One characteristic we learn of of God in the Bible is that God is a just God. And a just God is a holy God. And that is why God had to separate himself from us and distance himself when man sinned. But the hard part about that is just as we were singing earlier, he's a good, good father, God loves us. He loves every single one of us. So we see this difficult, how can God be just? And how can God be loving? Sometimes those things don't always go together very well. But it's important to understand how to put these two characteristics together. Some people say, well, if God is love, then why can't he just overlook our sins? Why can't he just say, it's okay, I love them, kind of like the parent that just, oh, yeah, I know they did bad, but that's my child. Why can't he do that? But he can't do that because God is just. So if he's a just God, why doesn't he just condemn us? Why doesn't he just say, well, Oh well, they didn't do what they were supposed to do, but he can't do that because he loves us. So the cross becomes necessary as a payment for our sins. Romans 3, 23-25 tells us, For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God and are justified freely by His grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. 
God presented him as a sacrifice of atonement through faith in his blood. He did this to demonstrate his justice because in his forbearance he had left the sins committed before unpunished. His sacrifice is the atonement we needed. He comes and he takes our place. What happens on the cross is the only way for you and me to be saved. So what happens on the cross is this. The wrath of God is poured on Jesus Christ. He drinks the cup and he becomes sin for us. And that's why when he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus had been abandoned by his God, by his Father, because he became our sin in that moment. He took on our sin, our darkest, dirtiest, scummiest sin he had on him in that moment. And it's important to note that in the Greek, this use of my God, my God, has a very distant meaning to it. There's no daddy here. There's no dada here. There's no terms of endearment. This is a distant, my God, my God, a feeling of being abandoned, a feeling of being separated. God is distant. And Jesus is saying, where are you? And we find out that at the foot of that cross, It's our sin that put Jesus there. No matter what sin it is, whether it's an attitude, it's how we treat people, it's a business, it's so black that it crucified Jesus. We have to face the fact that the cross tells us we're a whole lot worse than we realized we were. But we also have to understand and accept that the cross also tells us God is more powerful and loving than we ever could understand that he was. He is willing to go all the way to this horrible, unthinkable, scandalous death for you. And we find out then that it's necessary, and through its necessariness, it becomes powerful. 2 Corinthians 5.14 tells us this, for Christ's love compels us because we are convinced that one died for all and therefore all died. Paul says, when I understand the cross, when I truly understand what it means, when I understand it being God's final play for us to have a connection with us. It motivates me out of my mind. This translation, the NIV actually says, it compels me. The cross molds my character. It molds my behavior. It changes everything about who I am. It's not just about salvation. It's about my life. And the world has never heard or known a concept that powerful. 
There's a book written by Philip Yancey called What Good is God? And if you have not read that book, it is an incredible book. And in that book, he chronicles stories about people being at a time in their life where they were wondering if there was a God. And if there was a God, why were these horrible things happening in their lives? And he tells these powerful stories that there's no explanation as to how these things happened except for these people understanding and loving God. One of the stories he tells is about a couple that were German missionaries. And they were doing mission work in Turkey. And they had been meeting with this small group of people ministering to them for months. And there had been six Islamic extremists that had fooled everybody, acting as though they were interested in this Bible study, and they'd been coming to the Bible study, and one day they take out knives and they stab the husband 150 times. When news of this got around, it was asked if the wife would leave and when she was leaving, and she said no, that she felt like God had put her in Turkey for a reason, and she would continue to minister to these people, to these same people that killed her husband in this gruesome way. When a local newspaper heard of this, they came to her and said, how can you do this? They killed your husband in front of you. And they didn't just kill him, they annihilated him. And she said, forgive them, Father, because they know not what they do. And that was the heading of the newspaper the next day. Nothing can motivate someone to forgive like that but for the cross. Nelson Mandela is a man in history that spent 27 years in prison because of his opposition to the apartheid. When he is finally released, he is elected president of South Africa. At his election on that stage, he invited his warden of the prison that he had been in all those years to share the stage with him as to say to the people, we are reconciled. It is forgiven. There will be no hard feelings against him. And in this, he established something called the Truth and Reconciliation Commission. The commission ran like this. It ran like Jesus. It ran on grace. If anyone had abused someone and they would confess their crime, he would not be prosecuted for that crime and the person that they had done wrong to got to decide their penalty. And one of the most powerful pictures of this that Philip Yancey paints in his book is of an elderly woman who is facing a man that 15 years earlier came into her house, a cop, no less, takes her son, pulls him out into the street, covers him in gasoline, and burns him at the stake. And then eight years later, comes back into her house, pins her down as two other cops, stab her husband, and burn him at the stake. And now this feeble older woman is standing before this officer Vandenbroek. 
the man that killed her son, the man that prevented her from ever getting to see her son graduate high school, the man that prevented her from ever getting to have grandchildren, ever getting to share those Christmases with her husband, with her husband and her son. And here she is, having lived a life unlike she had imagined. And the commission asks her, what do you want done to this officer? And she says, this man took away my son, and he took away my husband, and I still have a lot of love left to give. I want him to be ordered twice a month to have to come to my house where I can cook for him and I can love on him and he can know all is forgiven. And Philip Yancey says there was not a dry eye in the place because no one could understand who could do this. What could motivate someone to do this? How can someone forgive like that? The only way someone can forgive like that, the only way someone can love like that, is to understand the cross of Jesus Christ. So the important decision we have to ask ourselves today is what are you and I going to do with the cross? There were two thieves on the cross with Jesus. And they helped to represent two of the three choices that we have. The first choice is illustrated in some of the first discussion we see of these thieves. Jesus is placed up here with these common thieves, the actual criminals, and it was a ploy to embarrass Jesus. And so these two thieves start to have a discussion about Jesus, and they start to mock him. But one of the thieves, as they're doing this, starts to have a change of heart, and he starts to marvel at Jesus. But the other one mocks Jesus. He sees Jesus as powerless and weak. But the one that starts to marvel at him starts to recognize a different kind of power, a power of love. He started to understand the power of the kingdom of God and what it's like. As we think about the cross, you have a choice. You can mock the cross. People do it all the time. They think it's a joke. Even Christians say, God can't be that bloody. Or you can marvel at the cross to the point that you want to be in the kingdom of God. Or you might fall into the third choice, the one that we fall into sometimes if we're not careful. And we miss it. We completely miss the cross. The ones that represent this are the ones that walked by the cross and didn't get it. See, crucifixions in Jesus' day happened pretty often. And they were held in public places so that people had to see the cruelty. It was a way to persuade people to not do bad things. They wanted it to be public so that you would see it and say, that's shameful, that's not the way that I want to die. So a lot of people 
on that afternoon just walked by the cross. It's estimated that thousands of people would have either heard the sounds or walked by and just kept walking. They might have noticed the crowds. They might have noticed the noise and commotion. But they didn't pay any attention to it. And my fear is that we know so much about the cross. We see it everywhere. We wear it everywhere. That we become so familiar with it that it doesn't shake us up. And we just miss it. We come to church every Sunday. We take the Lord's Supper. We sing the powerful songs. And we just miss it. This morning, let's have an unexpected encounter with the cross. Something unforeseen. Something exciting. Something amazing. They couldn't imagine following a God that died on a cross. They couldn't imagine anyone following that kind of God. But my question is to you, how can you not follow that kind of God? How can you not surrender your life to God on the cross? How can you not become totally committed to the God who gave so much for you? Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for this day. We thank you for this church family here. We thank you for the Bennetts. And we thank you for all of those in the leadership roles here that make this church what it is and the influence that they are in this community. And we ask that you just help this group of people here today to just focus on the unexpectedness of the cross. That they marvel at what it means to serve and follow a God that would make that kind of play for our love. That would be willing to go that far that would be willing to go against all social norm because of love. We ask that our lives reflect this type of love. That the way that we forgive people, the way that we show mercy, the way that we show kindness reflects that our understanding of the cross shapes our character. We ask that you be with all of us here that you guide us to be better influences for you. And the church said, Amen.